Throughout this series, we're taking a different phrase each week in John 1, and we're looking at it and reflecting on how Jesus puts God on display in the deep meaning and beauty of this Advent season. So uh, go ahead and turn to John 1, and uh, we're going to look through one, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. And if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. And uh, you can go ahead and keep that Bible if you don't have a Bible. And um, we'll go ahead and dive in. Well, the phrase that I have this morning, the word that I have this morning, is the word glory. We're looking at a different phrase, a different word each week about the meaning of the incarnation. And I have the word glory. And I realize that in defining glory, it can be a hard thing to do. And it reminded me of something that happened a few years ago with my daughter. So my daughter, sweet little girl, since she's two or three, she wakes up one morning with a cute little look on her face, comes up to me and says, Daddy, can we go somewhere? And I'm like, how sweet is that? My precious daughter wants to spend some time with me just to go anywhere. So we get in the car and we go to the park, and she has this look of confusion and anger that comes over her face. She says, Daddy, let's go somewhere. And I'm like, we're just here. I don't know. We This is somewhere. Is this an existential sort of thing that's going on here? I don't understand. So I go and I drive her somewhere else to take her. I think I took her to um, the ice cream place. Ice cream. Think about that. Every kid should be excited about ice cream. And as we pull up, she says, Daddy, I want to go somewhere. Let's go somewhere. And I have no clue what's going on. But probably about the third or fourth stop, I realized that at some point in time, I had told her, Eliana, we're going to go somewhere this morning. And wherever I went with her, she thought that place was named somewhere. So we're perplexed. We're driving around. We can't find somewhere. And she's thinking that I am her father withholding this good gift from her, tricking her every day, taking her to a place other than somewhere. And finally... We're driving one day, and her eyes get big. She looks out the window, and she points, and she says, look, it's somewhere. And I glance over to see Walgreens. <laughs> Apparently, she had had a good memory with Walgreens, and she just wanted to go to Walgreens, and I had been taking her somewhere. And there are certain things in this world that, that language is insufficient to define that you actually can't use words to figure out what the meaning of something is. You have to engage it in a tangible way. You have to have someone point it out to you. And when it comes to the glory of God, I think that that's one of those words. It's a challenging word to define. And in Advent, what we celebrate is the definition of God's glory, taking on flesh, stepping into humanity and not giving us a book or a dictionary, but giving us a life that says, when you look at me, you see the face of God, the definition of what God is like, and that is Jesus. John 1.14 is the sort of anchor verse we'll focus on, but we'll kind of look at some other things as well. It says the word, which we find out is, is uh, language using to, being used to describe Jesus 
became flesh, took on humanity, took on a full body, and dwelt among us, lived among us as human beings. And in his dwelling and living among us, we have seen the glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That in seeing the life of Jesus as he lived among us in his incarnation, we glimpse the grace of God. We glimpse the reality and the truth of his covenant faithfulness. We get to see what God so let's, let's talk a little bit about glory. Let's talk about definitions a little bit. It's challenging because um, I, as a young guy, use the word the glory of God constantly. But I honestly don't think I spent much time defining it. It just sounds like a nice, punchy, weighty word, like glory of God. You know that person's serious about Jesus if you say glory of God. But what does it mean? Well, if you look at the word that's being used in this passage here, the Greek word doxa, it means light. And it has this idea of, of a state of things light, of radiance, of magnificence. In other words, that God, there's something about God that is so good that it radiates out and it's beheld by all. Like imagine when you see a, a bright light that shines in the morning, uh, comes in through your window and wakes you up. That is the glory of the sun. And the glory of God is described as light. So even light, as beautiful as a metaphor as it is, it can't fully describe what God is like. I mean, God can't be uh, defined by water. He's, uh, he's not like a light bulb that's a certain amount of water that emits a certain amount of light. It's a metaphor to talk about the, the greatness of God's character emanating from him and being put on display. And what we see in this passage is that Jesus is the light who comes into the world that gives us a glimpse of what the glory of God is in his life. Well, that word doxa, that word for glory, is actually coming from the Old Testament idea um, of, of kavod, which is the word that we translate as glory, but literally it just means weight. Heaviness. It mean, it's, it's, it's kind of funny, like it's a, a, it literally means weight. So sometimes when they're talking about fat people in the Old Testament, they just say kavod. Like it's like your belly is your glory, that sort of thing. Um, but it kind of conveys this idea that the, the God and his character has a certain sort of weightiness, of substance, um, um, splendor, or maybe the word would be gravitas. That when you behold God, it, it, it carries weight, if you will. So doxa and kavod, they help us get there. They help us to understand that glory is like God's greatness and his honor and his majesty. But then I, I looked at some theologians, because I'm still having a hard time defining what this is. And I read a John Piper definition of what the glory of God is. He says, that the beauty of it, that God's glory is the beauty of God's manifold perfections and signifies a reality of infinite greatness and worth. And I read that and I said, amen. But then I realized there are three words in that sentence that are harder to define than glory itself. So being perplexed, I just walked down to the hall, read a bunch of books, 
But I got the best definition of glory from Josh Butler. I asked him, what, what, how would you define God's glory? And he said something great. He says, it's the emanation of God's beauty on display. It's, it's uh, God's character being put on display. But the challenge with defining glory, even that way, because I think that's the best definition of glory, is that in order to describe God's character, you have to say things like beauty and power and creativity and holiness. But even those words are nonsensical for us if they are not defined with a, by a tangible experience with an analogy, a real-life thing. And so in John 1.18, the end of this passage, this beautiful discourse about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, it says that no one has ever seen God, but Jesus has made him known. That the living definition of the glory of God is too weighty too glorious for words, but that it is contained in the presence and in the beauty of God. Now this passage here, it carries a lot of Old Testament uh, um, allusions. And when it refers to the glory of God, it refers to this tangible display of God's glory. That God has been tangibly displaying His glory throughout the whole Old Testament. And He does it in these three major ways. He displays his glory through the beauty of creation. That there's something about the beauty of creation that you can see that is like a living biological analogy for what God is like. And then through the glory of humanity, you see the glory of God. That humanity at its best displays the image of what God is like. And then God displays his glory through uh, the tabernacle and the temple, these places where he dwells with his people physically and shows what he is like. And so today I'm going to walk through each of those things. Creation, the glory of creation, the glory of humanity, and the glory of presence. And show how Jesus is the one who in his coming magnifies and amplifies each of those so that we can see the true glory of God. So let's start with number one. Jesus magnifies the glory of God in creation. When we open this passage in, in John 1, you see something really rich and beautiful. The beginning of the book of John starts out almost exactly like the book of Genesis. It says, in the beginning, first words in the book of Genesis, was the, and then it says, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And what this is essentially saying is that Jesus is the one who is present in creation. He is the creator of all things. And that the beautiful thing that happens is that the creator of all things actually stepped into his creation to make known the glory of the creation and how it points to the glory of God. He is the one who gave us life and gave, gave us all that we see and animates us with the breath that is in our lungs and then he steps into the world with his very own lungs and breathes in the very oxygen that he created. 
to show us the glory of God in creation. Now, you might be wondering, why an emphasis on creation? Why an emphasis of all this in the beginning stuff? Well, what's interesting is that in Genesis, what we see, Genesis 1 and 2, the opening chapters of the Bible, we see that God intends to display what he is like through the creation that he has made. Through things like rocks and rivers and trees, that these things, in some ways, contend being the glory of God. And tell us a little bit of what it's like. I would be prone to miss this. And so one day, there was this guy that was living in Turkey a number of years ago, and I met this really wise guy. Uh, he was supposed to be, he's like an overseer for me, he's a coach um, in the work I was doing, he's a godly man. And during that time, I was in my early 20s, I was probably, I mean, just I want you to imagine the most smug, arrogant um, guy in his 20s who thinks he knows something about theology, but really doesn't know it. He's like a walking Bible bingo, just throwing out stuff so that you think he actually knows something. That's what I was like. And I would always go around asking people who their favorite preacher was, and then subtly just trying to like slip in little bits of knowledge to show how much I knew. I didn't know much. But I wanted to be known as that guy. And no one ever stumped me like this guy, Tim. He said, I said to him, I said, who's your favorite preacher? And I like talking about John Calvin and Martin Luther and all these different people. And he looked, he kind of did this little wise man gaze out into the abyss. He says, Jim, I'll tell you who my favorite preacher was. My favorite preacher was that maple tree right over there. And I looked at him like, oh, this guy must not be very smart. Or he's so much of a hippie that I don't want to have anything to do with him. And, and I didn't think much of it. But then when I actually started to try to read John Calvin, I stumbled upon this sentence. It says, there is not one little blade of grass. There is no color in this world that is not intended to make men rejoice. And Calvin is writing about the fact that every aspect of creation in this physical world is supposed to show us something about God, to make us rejoice, and to, to see a glimpse of what God is like. Not that the creation itself is God, but that it itself is a preaching, preaching to us about what God is like. We see this in Psalm 19.1, that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim his handiwork. And in Romans 1.18, we see that God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen and understood from what has been made. That you can step into this world and see something about creation that tells you about the creator. Let me, let me illustrate this. You can always look at something that's been made and learn something about the nature of the creator. About, I don't know, several months ago, in October, the elders, we went on a retreat, and um, we were doing a lot of things in that retreat, and Ricardo decided he was going to institute a hamburger-making contest am amongst the three pastors who talk the most about how they can cook. So... It was Ryan Arneson, Jake Slobodnik, and myself. First, you got Ryan Arneson's hamburger. 
you know, Ryan Arneson, his hamburger, he puts it down. It's a hamburger that's beef mixed with steak. And you could tell something about him. He's a serious man. He's a man's man who likes beef mixed with steak. And he knew we were getting creative, so he slabbed some uh, peanut butter on top of it. And he's like, there you go. It was fantastic, actually. Jake Slobodnik. You could tell something about Jake. Jake ended up winning the contest because we'd been giving him such a hard time about how he was going to make some quinoa burger or something like that. <laughs> so he, you could, he ended up making the, this hamburger that had like bacon jam and bacon infused. It was like bacon chopped inside. It was like the triple quadruple bacon. And you could tell something about the creator of that creation. One, that he was a very skilled cook. Two, that he, he wanted to break the mold of us calling him the quinoa guy who makes all the, that stuff. And then I'll show you what I made here. All right, you're, you're laughing. Let me tell you about this creation. This is a hamburger that's uh, made up of, of uh, I used Doritos for the flour to bind it all together. Spam. Uh, it's about 50% spam, 50% beef. And uh, the bun I made by reconstituting Twinkies and forming a bun together. And, and you could tell something about the creator of that by the nature of that. Though. One is that I don't have a huge regard for the health of my friends. And two is that I care way more about creation, being creative and original than actually having anything that would ever taste good. So, but the thing is about creation is that you can, it's always a hint that tells you something about the creator. And that's what we see when we see these passages pointing us to look out into God's creation because God has made some things that are way more stunning and beautiful than a Spam and Dorito sandwich. When you stand before the Grand Canyon and you tremble at its immensity, you are beholding a preacher that is preaching to you about the glory of God. When you look out into an Arizona sunset with its combination and infusion of the colors purple and red and orange, you are beholding a preacher, an evangelist, that is telling you about the God who creates colors, when we look at the enormity and strength of various animals like a lion, and we tremble, we are encountering something, a power that speaks to the, the greater power and might of God. That all creation, all that God has made, is like a creature that's proclaiming the good news of who he is. So I'm going to ask you a question. What aspect of God's creation of, of nature um, makes you encounter God the most. Go ahead and discuss that with a few people around you. I'm going to bring us back into discussion.
All right, let's go ahead and bring it back. I'm sure there, there were some rich answers there. Um, but the way that I would answer that question is uh, I actually came to believe my friend Ken and that the trees are the aspect of creation that show uh, where I see the glory of God. I see the glory of God in the California redwoods. They can live 1,200 to 1,800 years and be over 350 feet tall. And when you look at them, you can't help but encounter the faithfulness of God and how that tree each day sequesters carbon and, and, and uh, nitrogen and water from the ground and keeps it moving upward toward the sky faithfully day after day. It is proclaiming to us the faithfulness of our God. The Moringa tree. Over in the corner of our campus, there's a Moringa tree. It is this tree where almost every part of the tree is edible. Don't just go eating random trees back there, okay. Um, but almost every part of the, the tree is edible. And, uh, and it takes very little water, and they plant it in areas of famine. And that tree has saved the lives of thousands of people by its ability to be resilient in the midst of horrible conditions. And we, and it reminds me of the God who is present with us in the midst of horrible conditions, who continues to give grace and provision through just the great Moringa tree that is growing in our lives. The mulberry tree that sits in my backyard and gives shade in the midst of a hot Arizona summer that allows us to sit outside even when it's 100 and whatever degrees speaks to the hospitality of God who invites us in. And ultimately, all of that creation was fashioned by the hands of he is the creator who was in the beginning, who created all those things. And every bit of glory that we see in them would be unintelligible to us had not Christ stepped into his creation. The artist jumping into his art to explain to us the ways in which we can turn to God and how to reconcile us to that and bring us to God. Which leads us to point number two that Jesus displays the glory of God through his name. This phrase in verse 14, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've heard it before if you've been around church. But it is one of the most shocking statements in the New Testament. It says that Jesus actually became real humanity. I, I went hiking with a New Testament professor uh, this weekend, mostly to just check to see if my sermon was right. Um, but he said this statement right here should should blow our minds with its, its weight and poetry. That the logos, the, the, the word became salt, the flesh, that he dwelt among us, that God entered into real humanity. And he says you can't emphasize enough how real the humanity is. It's not like Jesus is pulling off you know, an episode of Undercover Boss where he, like, pretends to be humanity. He, like, puts on some makeup and he walks around and he sees how we're doing around here and scopes things out and then gives us a bunch of gifts at the end. But he is real humanity. He's so human. He's the human with chapped lips and childhood friends and the occasional need of a nap. His humanity is full and gritty. 
with splinters that pierced his skin during his work of carpentry uh, preceded the nails that would pierce the tomb themselves. Before the glory of the resurrection, Jesus rose from dead over 1,200 times to wipe the sleep out of his eyes and to step into the mundane rhythms of real human life. Before, I mean, he is the God who takes the bread and fish and multiplies it for the masses. But he was also the full human with tilapia in his soup. He was real humanity who came to dwell among us. And in his, but why is that important? It is important because God had instituted humanity as the pinnacle of his creation to display what his glory is like. We see this in Psalm 8, this beautiful psalm that talks about the beauty of creation, but there being a certain aspect of creation that is the crown of all creation. It says in Psalm 8, in verse uh, uh, 5 through 9, or in verse 5, it says that, speaking of humanity, it says that you have crowned him, humanity, with glory and honor. Crowned with glory. And it says, given dominion over the works of your hands. The works of God's hands, humans have dominion over. And then it's this beautiful psalm that speaks about tending sheep and uh, fishing and, and these sorts of things. That humanity plays a unique role in being a display of God's character. The, the, the song here in, in the Psalm 8 is, a, is alluding to what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. That humans are created in the image of God. That word image being used as like almost like a statue or a portrait. That humanity, at its best, doing what it's supposed to do, in the fullness of its character and in the goodness of its work, is supposed to be like living self-portraits of God spread throughout the world. And when we live into the human vocation and do good works and display rich character, we show a glimpse of what God is like. Abraham Kuyper says it like this. This is actually the quote that's from our mural that's across the campus. He says, God crowns creation with humanity who awakens its light, arouses its powers, and with human hands brings to light the glory that once lay locked in the great depths that had not yet shown its contents. In other words, we are able to step into the world and we get a snapshot of God as we cultivate the things of him that are his good work. So every utterance of the phrase, I love, I forgive you, is a portrait of God's mercy and forgiveness. Every human who gives wise counsel to a friend is giving a portrait of God's wisdom. Every healthy marriage is a portrait of Christ's sacrificial love. And then let's take it to our work. The farmer who knows which seeds in which season to plant those seeds is displaying the wisdom of God. The sound of an oboe amplifies the potential that God hid in, in creation, was waiting for us to discover, and that joyfully uh, embodies God's generosity. Detail-oriented managers display the intricacy of God's rule. Investigative journalists dramatize the knowledge of God. Good police show us a glimpse of God's protection. And everywhere you see good human work, you are seeing a portrait, a glimpse 
of God. So let me ask you this. This question is a discussion that goes around you. Whose work would you point to as a portrait of God's good work? Go ahead and discuss that with some people around you. Any friend or family that you know, whose work would you point to as a portrait of good work? Go ahead and discuss, and I'll bring us back in a minute. I'm going to give you my answer. My answer would be Silas Tyler. He's a guy who's a part of this congregation, and I admire this guy a lot. When I see the way he is as a father, I see a glimpse of what the father is like. When I see his faithfulness, he has served in obscure ways in the church for years. You see a glimpse of the faithfulness of God. But, But what really shows me the glory of God his work that he does, not with his employment, just his work outside of work as a, as a uh, woodworker. But let's go ahead and show his faithfulness. What he has there is an Aleppo pine tree that fell in, the, in Tempe during a storm that he found, he, mil- he milled, he turned the wood into something usable, and then he created that tree. And th- that, that should hit you a little bit. Because in the creativity of design, you are seeing God's creativity. In the intricate order and detail orientation, you are seeing the order of God. In the, his ability to make a table that isn't wobbly and is inhabitable for human beings, you see a glimpse of the God who made the earth not wobbly and inhabitable for human beings. And, and really, there is a certain beauty, a glory that points to the glory of God in the Aleppo pine. But there is a greater glory that comes from the humanity that hits the Aleppo pine, that hits the tree, and cultivates it into a table of God's sacrifice. So we see a little bit. We human beings, we were made to be creative. And when we do things like that, we put a portrait of God out to the world. But we have a problem because a lot of what we do is not make tables like that out of trees. Humanity has a messed up relationship with trees. It's a big problem because what we see right after sin enters in the world and the nature of sin entering into human hearts, as it says in Romans 1, we exchange the glory of God for an image of mortal man, of birds, of animals. We basically take God's creation, something like a tree, and rather than carving a good table, rather than admiring the faithfulness of God in a giant sequoia, human beings have been carving little statues and images of so-called idols that we've been worshiping. We've been taking God's creation and worshiping it instead of the creator. 
you might be thinking, I'm off the hook. I've never, like, chopped down a tree and made a little statue of, like, an elephant or anything and worshiped that. I mean, but think about it. Where do we get money from? <laughs> we pull the pulp out of the tree, and we print it out, that good dream, and we orient our lives around other things. So human beings who are supposed to be portraits of God have become distorted. We have, we are the ones who take the minds that God has given us that was made to meditate in his glory and see all of the good in his world and to dream up ways to serve others. And we have become self-aggrandizing, self-centered, self-obsessed people who distort the image of God. But Christ, who is the true humanity, is always focused on the love of the Father and pouring himself out for the humanity he created. We take the hands that God gave us to display his glory that were made to embrace our neighbor and to cultivate tools of productivity, and we build instruments of destruction that drain the life of innocence and leave mothers But Christ, with his hands, who heals the sick, embraces the overlooked, and made some of the best fish sandwiches when he multiplied the bread and the fish for the masses. Jesus is the true humanity where we failed as humanity. And with our words, we were meant to praise God and uh, lift up our neighbor, but we have filled the world with an avalanche of lies and the internet with a tsunami of fear. But the voice of Jesus is the voice of God as the true humanity speaking full of grace and full of truth and with his words offering to us the opportunity to know God and to become friends through him. Jesus is the true humanity. And then finally, I close with this and this will be short. But Jesus shows us the glory of God through the death of the cross. When it says that Jesus dwelt among us, that phrase is intentional, um, and it's intentionally trying to allude to the Old Testament idea of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was like this tent, this sort of where, where God would fill the tent with his glory and his presence. The word glory, his glory and presence were sort of synonymous. And everywhere the people of Israel went as they were traveling through the desert, they would bring the tabernacle with them. It was kind of like God's like worship RV. It was like a mobile home for God where he existed in his glory and it had a, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud of glory through the day. And the thing that Israel was always, um, that they were known by, was that they were the unique people who were known as the people who were defined by God's presence in the what this passage is saying is that something greater than the tabernacle is happening. God has come even closer than the mobile RV of worship. He has actually taken on, taken on human flesh and, and made himself present to us. How, what could possibly be more present other than God indwelling us and him showing us in the flesh and being the God There's a certain glory that comes from the beauty of a redwood tree. 
there's an even greater glory of the potential of that greater, of that, of that redwood tree being cultivated into a beautiful thing. And there's an even greater glory when God comes to sit with us at that table and to be with us. And that's what Advent is about. God's stepping to the table, sitting and being with us to be with us and to be present with us and to display the fullness of that glory to be embodied in our lives. And you may be saying, I wish I could sit with you and be with you. Sit at the table and share a meal with you. Well, Advent, my friends, is not just about when Jesus came to us, but it's when he comes a second time. When the day is coming, when he will show up to that Aleppo pine tree that Silas has crafted, told me it's a different tree, I don't know. And he will sit in the presence of Jesus, fully incarnate, to character and glory as you prepare to take communion, I want that image to be in your mind. As you take the bread, let that be a reminder that the day is coming when you will taste this and, and take that with me. When you dip it into the wine of the juice, that you will sit at the table with me and that you will reign with that the fullness of, of the beauty of the glory of God that has been displayed in creation, in humanity, and in that moment Father, we thank you that you have made yourself known to us. You have displayed truly who you are. We thank you for the echoes of this memory of creation and time, but also that you come to sit with us now and I pray that as we come forward for communion, that we would have a sense that we are sitting with you and that we are in your presence. Holy Spirit.